Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today, and I'm speaking with Bob DeWay, Gospel of Grace's teacher and theologian and author of Critical Issues Commentary. In this series, we are discussing Dutch Sheets' book, Intercessory Prayer, and we are at chapter 8, which he's titled Supernatural Childbirth. Now, this is probably my most marked up chapter in this whole book. There is so much here, but it really all comes back to one main error. But before we really dive into the text, you just kind of want to give us an overview of what he means by supernatural childbirth? His theory is based on this word travail that you find. Okay. Especially in the Old Testament. And the analogy of literal childbirth. Yes. The difficulties of that in some passages that refer to it. And so then the idea of the supernatural childbirth is that there's a way that people travail in prayer in order to get someone saved that they want to see saved. Right. And he says here on page 124, how can a mere human have a part in birthing spiritual life? What do groaning, weeping, and hard work have to do with it? And he goes on in his chapter there to make this about a birthing prayer. What's missing in this entire chapter is the preaching of the gospel. If How can a mere human have a part in birthing spiritual life? Well, really, we can't, but we can preach the gospel and God can bring forth spiritual life. Yeah, that's amazing to me, frankly. I heard stuff like this way back when I was a new Christian, whether it was from Pentecost, some Pentecostals or maybe in the charismatic. Okay. The travail yes. was a type of prayer that would uh, mean the person is very, very serious. And, you know, they travail so hard that they're, they're wanting something to happen. He's applying it to conversion of someone. Okay. When you look at this analogy and then the stories that accompany it, there, there's always stories. Right. Like you could assume most of this is based on stories. Yep. Somebody did this, and this is the result they got. And the scriptures are convenient in that they may loosely refer to similar ideas. Okay. As the passage in the Old Testament that we'll talk about that has to do with a similar analogy for Israel and her prophets prophesying about the travail. Okay. So that comes up in here. And then there's stories in the meantime. But interestingly, when I was reading this, I reread that entire chapter today. It's It gets very burdensome after a while because it grieves me to think of all the people that hear this and believe it and how how it harms them. Right. And the saints that get under that sort of teaching where it's up to you, you've got to get there and you've got to be serious and you better uh, do whatever, so on. And then he doesn't say it in a threatening way, but in a way that implies that a few of them really got the secret to this and they got the revelation. 
Right. Most of us adults don't have it. He doesn't okay. call it that. That's my word, but it's the impression you get if you're not an insider in their movement. And then there's stories about how people did it and they got a certain per person saved through their travail. Right. So then it becomes about us and not God. It's sort of a synergistic work. Yes. You know, us and God working together is how he states it. Recently, as I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians, I did an application part at the end of the sermon from John 3, where it speaks about being born of the Spirit. Okay. So this morning when I was reading, rereading that chapter that I read some months ago, when I read the whole book, I thought, well, this is really quite opposite of what it says in John 3. Okay. So to be born again of the Spirit is a work of God. So after reading it again, I went in and pulled up some of the material I have and printed it. So here's John 3, 8. The wind blows wherever it wants. You hear its sound, but you do not know from where it comes and where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Okay. That's John 3, 8. Now, in the bigger context, there's this discussion about you must be born again. Right. Most people know. And Nicodemus. This has been discussed over the centuries, but it's really not as confusing as some people might think it is. The fact is that being born of God is a work of God. Yes. He does it. Right. And it's not a cooperative effort between God and man. Okay. And so I have some more current commentaries, one here by E.W. Clink, Son of an Exegetical Commentary in the New Testament. So you have this, the wind, the word pneuma, that's a play on words. The word spirit is pneuma, wind pneuma. Okay. Of course, you can pick up the sound of a rushing wind at Pentecost. Yes. So he says this, this is a professor. The analogy is empowered by the contrastive traction between the two. The meaning is found not in the point of reconciliation between differences, but in the one thing that both wind and spirit have in common, the mysterious, the unseen. Okay. So okay. what's unseen? So the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Yes. According to John. Uh, in John 15, 26, it says, when he, the Spirit, comes, he will testify of me. Right. So he testifies about Christ. And so the more you see the truth of the person and work of Christ proclaimed, extolled, taught, applied, then you know the Holy Spirit's at work, uh, whatever's going on, because he's testifying about Christ through the preacher. Right. What about someone who is born again? Well, Jesus himself says, so it is everyone born of the Spirit. It's a supernatural work of God. Okay. The means by which that happens is through the proclamation of the gospel. Right. Now, here's what Dutch Sheet says. This is page 131. 
there is an aspect of prayer that brings things in the spirit. We are birthers for God. Then a little farther down in the same paragraph, he says, we do not generate life, but we release through prayer him who does. So according to Dutch Sheets, it's about us releasing yeah. the Holy Spirit through prayer, right? not the preaching of the gospel. See, that sort of claim is what sent me to John 3, 8, which is just one of the verses I preached on in one of my applications in the last couple of months. Okay. What he says is the opposite of what Jesus said. Right. Okay. So if you're choosing between Dutch Sheets and Jesus, I'm going to go with Jesus. <laughs> yes. Okay, and what I can't understand is if the concern, which is rightly our concern, with the salvation of the lost, then why wouldn't you proclaim the terms of the gospel? Why wouldn't you exalt Christ? Wouldn't you talk about who he is, what he did, what it is we need to be saved from, the wrath of God against sin, the blood atonement, okay, and, and the various things we need? Right. And that uh, he died for all, once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. The Holy Spirit's work in regenerating lost sinners is explained in John 3, in, including in verse 8. So you can't control the wind. That's the analogy. Yeah. It blows where it blows. And you can't control the Holy Spirit. Right. He regenerates who he regenerates. We're the proclaimers of the gospel. Here's what uh, Dr. Klink says. The wind cannot be controlled. It contains its own power. The wind can be heard and even recognized, but cannot be known or analyzed. Its activities, although active in and around us, are wholly other. At one of the same time, a part of our experience yet totally beyond us. So it is with the Spirit. For the Spirit, Holy Spirit, is able to provide new birth. So yes. God is, saves people. It's not a co-work between us and God, and it happened because we, in, in these analogies, we travailed for hours and hours and sweat and travailed, and, and then over some singular person in one case, in one of these stories. Um, if this is our concern, then... We do pray, and what does it say in the Bible? Pray that the Lord of Harvest harvest and send out laborers. Right. It doesn't say pray to release the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit poured out on the day of Pentecost. Right. Does convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We need to be gospel preachers. Yes. And what happened to the Great Commission? Right. So and here's here's on page 124, Dutch she says this chapter is about supernatural childbirth. My success rate was poor in praying for the loss, as was everyone else's I knew. So I thought I'd see what the Bible had to say about it. And so then he finds a verse that God is going to give the heathen to Christ. And uh then he goes to this idea of travail. Yes. And travail would be a word used for what a woman would go through in childbirth. 
Yeah. So I looked up just the dictionary definition there, and it's painful or laborious effort. So um, then he tells a story about someone who uh, was weeping uncontrollably, controllably, got a personal word from God, and all these things happen, and then the person that she was surveilling for showed up in church and got saved. Okay. Yeah. Well, we rejoice that anybody comes to Christ. But this gives the impression that if all you did was teach the truth and preach the word of God and call sinners to repentance, then you failed because you didn't travail. Right. And he does, and in context here, he never ever explains the terms of the gospel. Right. It's not here anywhere. Yeah, nor does any exegetical work with, I think, the key passage there in John chapter 3 that I just cited. Yes. But rather, it's up to us. And there's this thing called travail in prayer that, according to Mr. Sheets, most of us don't know. Right. And it's been unknown. But a few people have gotten this revelation or understanding through allegorical use of Scripture, as always. Okay. And then, uh, though they don't call it that, and they find out this secret, and the claims get more grandiose as you go through the chapter. Yes. Okay, so this... If you if you build chapter after chapter, concept after concept, proof text after proof text, always taken out of context, and you look at the cumulative effect, and I'm cognizant of that because I saw a whole group under teachings like this and what the cumulative effect was over years. Okay. Which is hopelessness and despair. Right. Everyone but the top leaders who had never would never admit they had a weakness. Okay. People figuring I did it wrong. They raise their kids, and if in some cases the kids aren't serving God, they assume they failed. Okay. If uh, whatever doesn't come out the way we hoped it did, we must have failed. We didn't get the right preacher. We didn't try hard enough. We weren't serious enough. We should have done this. We should have done that. And that's the result of a pragmatic approach to spiritual things. Right. So, in other words, we're trying things to see what works. Okay. And we're convinced about what works based on stories that a traveling preacher will come through with. Yes. Or that are published in... Back in our day, New Wine magazine, maybe it's still out there. I don't know. Okay. Uh, there's a, the elite had all these stories. Yes. Not just their stories, stories they heard at the meetings they held from somebody else's story. Okay. Stories, stories, stories. What about scripture? Allegorize, allegorize, allegorize. Allegorize scripture, stories. Okay. Objective religious experience. God told me, I felt, I did this, I travailed, 
this went on and on. And here's a result in years of that. And we finally got out of it and just started teaching the Bible, believing that God would actually keep his promises. Okay. So <laughs> when I read this, it's like, wow, I'm, I remember that. Yeah. I remember those meetings. I remember those stories. Well, and as I was preparing for today, because this book came out in 96, I kind of like to look and say and see, are they still teaching this? Is this still something that's going on? And looking at other charismatic teachers with this idea of travailing prayer or birthing prayer, they all go back and quote Dutch sheets from this book. And so not as only is it still going on, they point back to Dutch sheets as not necessarily the source of it, but the final authority on it. And some of them even recite his stories from this book. So it just keeps going. You know, spend what not 20, 25 years, something like that. And they're still sharing these stories and teaching the same things. And nobody's coming along and saying, okay, well, is this a proper application of scripture? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, that's really sad, but I know to be true. Okay. Once you get into that sort of movement and you go hear the stories and get an exciting experience at meetings. Yes. That your meetings better have exciting experiences or you, you'll you be um, gone in no time. Okay. Yeah, that world is the world of exciting meetings. Yes. And you better figure out how to make it happen. You better have fantastic music and just get this thing going and get everybody revved up and and then tell the stories and have the power. And that has to just continually go on or people will leave and go to somewhere else where that's happening. Okay. That's what that world is like. Yes. And I was part of it for a while. And this is, I don't doubt the enthusiasm or the, hopes that people have. And I don't want to judge anybody's motives because only God knows the heart. Yeah. But I can say categorically, it is not biblical. Right. And if you apply the test of spirits given in the Bible, how do you discern a true work of the spirit? It fails. Yes. And I don't see the confession of Christ, the gospel, the terms of the gospel, the blood atonement, doubtless they believe in it. I don't see careful exegesis of scripture so that the Holy Spirit inspired author's meaning comes to the forefront, not somebody's personal revelation about what the verse means. As we've said many times, this will um, save you, dear ones. If you're if you've been under this, or your friends are under this, here is what it is. It sounds pious, but here's what it is. They talk about the Holy Spirit told me, but that's just a subjective religious experience inside your own mind. Right. You don't know that that's certainly from God. Yes. And many of the things that the Holy Spirit tells people over the decades, so they claim that they speak forth, fail. Right. 
And that's gone on for decades after decades. Yes. Including just recently. Okay. Demonstrated with these decrees that they made here in America that didn't come to pass. So what conclusion can you come to that if this is the spirit telling me I need to learn the travail prayer to get things birth and come into existence. And the reason I know that is the Holy Spirit told me or took a Bible verse and the Holy Spirit is telling me this is what it means. Then you've just lost the meaning of the Holy Spirit inspired author and added the meaning of your own thoughts about it that you are attributing to the Holy Spirit. Yep. So here is the bottom line. The claim that your belief that comes into your mind by some means or supernatural experience is the Holy Spirit telling you what the Bible means. Okay. It's a fancy, religious, pious way of saying the reader determines the meaning, not the author. Right. Or, as I've talked about before, it's as if the Holy Spirit encoded a meaning into the Bible through the authors, but what the words mean in their context is how it's not how we figure it out. It's a decoding process, as if you didn't want anybody to be able to just get a Bible, read it, and know what it means. Okay. So it's encoded, and then, well, I don't know what this means. And then you, the Holy Spirit tells you, no, it means this. And it may not even have anything to do with what it actually says. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure Dutch Sheets is doing that because he uses concordances and words and stuff. But he comes up with the wrong meaning every time. Now, I'm not, there may be one where he got it right. Yeah. But I didn't see one in this chapter. Maybe there is one somewhere. Yeah. Well, next week we're gonna we will come back and we're gonna talk about one key one that he gets really wrong, which is out of Isaiah sixty six, yeah, and I his application is the exact opposite of the okay. meaning of the text. Okay, so what would you do if you were a Bible teacher and you had your concordance or you had these words from the Greek or the Hebrew, and then you had these stories. And somebody said, well, I travailed, and this is what happened, and that's why someone got saved. And here's what travail's all about. Okay, so you see that, okay, that's the way it is. But then when you find out, if you actually looked at the verse in context, it had nothing to do with that? Yeah. Okay. Well, what would you do? Wouldn't you just say, wait a second, this isn't right. I need to tell people what God did say? Right. So what I don't understand is then, as you were saying, this is still going on. The book is still out there. They're still doing this 25, 30 years later. So it seems to me the learning process stopped a long time ago. Right. The air continues. The problems get worse. The grand proclamations of what going is going to happen. And I know this because I was there when they were when I was in the movement in the 70s. Okay. These glorious proclamations about the future fail every single time. Yes. It hasn't happened. It didn't happen. It fell apart. 
Yep. Okay. So what do you think? I wish the leaders would think about the poor saints. Who is guarding the flock? Who cares about the sheep? Do they even think about what if you're someone that keeps that for the last 40 years has gone to these meetings and have had their hopes raised and believe these things and their kids aren't serving God and they they have financial problems. I know this from many people that I've known. They've been a part of this. This going back fifty years. Okay. They don't get the outcomes that these that are promised by these high floating leaders. And where do you think they're going to be at the as they get into their seventies and eighties? It just ends up shaking their faith every time. They're wondering if they're even Christian. Yep. And I have heard from some even recently people that are hanging on. They want they they need something. They need some solid rock that's not a bunch of stories and misused Bible verses. Right. Or grand claims by these uh, prophets and apostles that don't come to pass. Now, I don't know how else to say this. I ha- I do hear from people who got out of the movement to say their friends won't give up on it no matter what. Yep. Absolutely. Why, why do they not want to give up on it? Uh, probably because then they would feel like they don't have hope. Right. And there's there's this idea that if we will just do something, then change can happen. Well, that's certainly American. <laughs> yes. Uh, post-millennialism, by the way, that we're going to have the mill- a millennial kingdom in America without Christ. Okay built into the country. So this sort of a revivalist approach has been around for a hundred years. So I can understand why Americans are deceived by it. I consider it. Well, we talked about this. Mm-hmm. So everything's supposed to get better and better and the millennium will come to America. Finney claimed that. And then we're going to have this glorious Christian country and people are going to be serving God and righteousness will be on every street corner. And, uh, the future is glorious, and then from here, the other nations will find out how they can have their millennium, and that Christ can reign over their nations. And that's been going on for a lot longer than the, since the 70s, go back to the 19th century, at least, or before that. Yes. Where is it? it hasn't happened, but that's... It's worse. It's worse. Right. <laughs> it's right now. In where I'm living, the state has gone so off its rocker in some of the things that they're thinking are righteous or good. Yeah. It's it's just the shock of it is stunning. Yeah. Things that no one, when I was a kid, none of the adults in the entire world in rural Iowa, where I grew up, would ever advocate for what's being promoted as righteousness. Right here and right now. Yeah. Okay. So I just say that I'm not, it's shocking in some ways, not in the other way, ways you look, well, that's what worshiping the creature and the creator ends up looking like. Absolutely. Okay. So where is the Christianized millennium, the shining light, the glorious 
kingdom of God come to America without Christ? Where is it? Yeah, but it's well, and and what gets lost in there is the true gospel. Well, they they forgot about that one. Yeah. Okay. How about I? I we were talking about why do some uh, friends of people who get out of it, okay, still want to cling to it, even though they got all these problems, and their friends are trying to help them. Say, you know, this isn't really right. Because it sounds so much more hopeful than the idea of the narrow gate that few there are that walk down the narrow path, that being born of God and knowing the truth and having eternal hope means you're probably in a small minority. Yes. Where you are. Okay. Okay. And that the things that we would like to see aren't promised for this fallen world. They're going to happen when Christ returns. Right. And that's what we're going to talk about next time when we look at that passage in Isaiah and elsewhere. They take things that are promised for either the millennial kingdom or the eternal order, okay? All right. That has Christ actually literally returned and ruling and apply it to now and then claim that it hasn't happened because we aren't serious enough or we haven't tried hard enough. Yep. And if you're like us, you say, well, that's not even the gospel. They're saying, well, you're a defeated Christian because you already gave up. Right. So, no, I haven't given up. I believe the promises of God. I believe God is going to convert people through the gospel. And I see it happen many, many times. We hear from people and we have people come and come to Christ and there are people baptized. This is what it looks like. It's not a massive revival that turns America into the kingdom of God. It's God plucking people out of the fire of future wrath and bringing them safely into his kingdom by his grace and his mercy through the atonement, through the blood of Jesus, through gospel preaching, and the pure, unadulterated teaching of the word of God causing growth and sanctification. Yes. So I promise you, the idea that the reader determines the meaning of the Bible is as liberal as anybody is ever going to get. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why nowadays in our country, people can't figure out how many genders there are. Yep. Okay, don't think that somebody like this, who would be a conservative, has a better answer when they do the same hermeneutic, the reader determines the meaning. Yep. They're just a different sort of reader than the woke folks are, but they're still determining the meaning, not the author. Absolutely. All right. So we are out of time for this edition of Critical Issues Commentary Radio. You can access this episode and many others, as well as years worth of articles at the website cicministry.org. While you're there, click on contact and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We want to encourage you all to stand firm in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this is Jessica Kramis. And Bob DeWay. We'll see you next week.